All right, mister. You want trouble, you're going to get trouble. Oh, I want trouble, all right. Then you're going to get trouble. No, you're going to get trouble. Oh, that's good. That's good, because I want trouble. Then we're agreed there'll be trouble. Oh, yeah, lots of trouble. Trouble it is. For you. Don't! It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Saturday, everybody. I'm Gary Manson. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell in your ears, fortunately for us, hopefully for you, because we're going to have some highbrow conversation today and do it entertainingly. We also want to say hello to our buddy, tall guy, Nathan, who mans the facilities on our behalf across in a diagonal manner, North America, to bring this quality show to you directly. Nathan, how are you today, sir? Hey, good morning, Gary and Suzanne. And it's so nice having Zoom using the video feature because I get to see you, uh, Suzanne, on the left and then Gary's on the right. And then there's some guy, he's in the middle. He looks to be about 80 years old, sitting on a folding chair, has his legs crossed, wearing <laughs> mittens. Uh, why? Oh, Wait a minute. That's oh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Siegel. Yes, Bernie Sanders. We're, all, we're feeling the burn. <laughs> we're all, I like his mittens. Isn't he selling a lot of mittens these days or something? He looks nice and toasty. I'll tell you that. One uh, one meme I saw online shows Bernie Sanders as the protagonist in the animated feature Up, where he's being carted off by a horde of balloons. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty Man, they're crazy. flying around like crazy. It's amazing what the Internet can do when it goes viral, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Technology. It's unbelievable. And, and a quick note, we note the passing of Larry King, broadcasting legend, a giant, a multimedia giant, really, for 50 years or so, you give the man his due, whether you cared for his personality or not, there his style being what it is, he made a big name for himself, and um, I hope he's broadcasting somewhere fun right now. Larry King passing away at the age of 87, and it seems, Suzanne, to have been COVID-related. I did not know that, and I'm sorry to hear that. We, yeah. we were talking about Don Wells a few weeks ago and now yes. Larry King. So the virus does not care who you are or what your station is in life, That's what's your true. religion, your politics. It matters not. And so uh, wear the damn mask, everybody. I'm not saying that these victims of it did not. You could be very careful, very prudent and somehow still get it. Yeah. And that's uh, it's something we have to keep in mind. We had Be someone safe. on here, the, the wonderful Carol Bromley, who is uh, from the metaphysical wing of our show. And uh, she's a medium. No sense trying to hide that. Very different from the kind of guest we're going to have today. But Carol Bromley, a dear lady who has a remarkable track record of accuracy in her predictions, indicated that for the English speaking countries, February is going to be a most challenging month, most difficult. And the trends are heading in that direction, unfortunately, as the Biden administration is now letting us know. So uh, buckle up and let's try to get through this. Why don't we bring Shepard Siegel on, a remarkable gentleman. He's the kind of guy I figure we have on five or six times by now. Was this his second appearance no, plus a rerun? No, no, no. It's, it's, his, it's his third appearance, but we replayed the second one. Shepard Siegel was a rock and jazz musician, then educator, earning his doctorate at UC Berkeley. He has over 30 publications and numerous awards. 
he returned to his countercultural roots to write Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture, and share its message of playfulness and progressive change. Uh, Dr. Siegel lives in Seattle with a growing community of merry pranksters. This is the third time we've had him on. And I wanted to say that uh, the first time we had him on in August of 2019, we talked about uh, Dada's and the painters and the performance artists and the history that, that were the origins of play. The second time we had him on in April of 2020, we talked about the beats and the writers. It was Great. something that you were way into at that I time, Gary. That. And today we are going to talk about musicians, hippies, the 60s, and a whole bunch of really good Those stuff. Those damn unwashed hippies. Welcome once again to Manson Mitchell, Dr. Siegel. So good to have you on today. So good to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. I want to throw something ripped from the pages of today's headlines, Shep, and welcome back. We love talking to you. I wanted to just, uh, by way of getting your evaluation of current events, and there's plenty to study there, I note that Pew Research Center has come out with a poll in which, and there was one line, one indice of that poll that really caught my eye, Roughly 8% responding to this poll asking about the U.S. Capitol riot, what I regard as an attempted coup and certainly the overturning of a free and fair election. Right. We've all seen the scenes. We've, we've heard much about it and there's much more to be shared. 8% responding to this poll expressed doubt about whether the rioters were actually Trump supporters some of those named Antifa or Black Lives Matter as the real perpetrators. So what's reality? What's fiction? Where do we go from, from verifiable fact to opinion that gets too big for its britches and is bandied about as an alternative truth, a set of alternative facts? Shep, you look into this kind of stuff closely. I, I do, uh, but that doesn't mean I'm I'm not as befuddled as anybody else by current events. It's much harder for me to speak on them. <clears throat> I prefer to dig into uh, a little bit of history where the dust has settled. But don't get me wrong, I think about this stuff all the time. So let, let me give a little bit of background on things I've noted about fake news because, um, you know, and, and by the way, 8%, that's, that's a pretty high number for people to believe that outrageous of a claim, you know? Um, so I'm really glad you brought that up. So back to the Dada's, you know, they, uh, they pulled this prank once where they planted a story in a newspaper. There was this author and he was like the 19 teens um, equivalent of the guy who would write paperback novels you'd buy in the grocery store, you know? Um, he was, you know, commercially successful, but not a, not really a, a significant or a very good author. And the Dada's just wanted to make fun of him. And so they planted a story that um, that, that he'd been challenged to a duel, uh, but then he didn't show up. And they were just pranking him. They were There was no harm intended. There was no harm except to this man's pride. And there was no duel at all. And then you know, think about... Um, you know, I was thinking about our talk today and thinking about how Abby Hoffman uh, got to where he did in terms of using the media 
and and using pranks and you know I and, and what we we talk about the Pentagon we always assume those things came out of the left and got co-opted by the right but the um, the original inspiration for Abby Hoffman was when he went to the McCarthy hearings in the House on Un-American Activities where they were ruining people's careers you know blacklisting directors in Hollywood bringing up people and making them swear publicly that they weren't a member of the Communist Party. And it didn't matter what the truth was. Uh, what mattered is that they could, just by getting these people on the stand and getting it on television and getting it in the papers, they could humiliate them to the point of ruining their careers. So the inspiration came from the right, and then the left used it. But now, But now it's like, you know, and then I think the last historical marker uh, um, that I, Gary, that I that I that I speak to is, you know, I'm imagining um, a, a person who hasn't even yet decided to run for president, but claims that President Obama was born in Africa, and despite all evidence to the contrary, gets millions of people to believe him. And I'm, I'm imagining a discussion where he goes, well, if they'll buy that, <laughs> they'll buy anything, huh? And, uh, and the last five years have shown us the, that particular truth. So um, I'm, I'm troubled by it. Um, I read, I, a lot of folks have probably heard of Matt Taibbi. Um, I know he used to do political writing for Rolling Stone, and he's got his own thing going now. And, and he did a recent essay where he was really reminding us that, you know, when it was three networks and, and PBS, you know, uh, and we watched the news and you got more or less the same facts from every channel. So there could at least, even though we had our disagreements, there was a national consensus on what the facts were. And he was making a plea for some kind of a return to that. Um, you, so, al you also had fair and balanced reporting back then before Roger Ailes started Fox News, which right. was specifically to target the right. You had to present the facts on both sides. And, and that somehow got either legislated away or, or by um, use just went away so that the, the media became more polarized. Yeah, yeah, he did. And, and you're reminding me, Suzanne, that the, the, there was this thing called the Fairness Doctrine. Remember when, you know, you had to present both sides um, on the news? And I also remember a time, I mean, you could be a sports station, you could be a classical music station, you could be a rock and roll radio station. You had to dedicate a certain number of minutes to uh, the news every every hour or every two hours. I not, don't know what the numbers were. I believe, I'm not, I haven't researched it recently, but I believe it was in the Ronald Reagan administration that they did away with that doctrine. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yes, I, I definitely do, which of course was like rocket fuel to uh, the, the Fox Network type and Rush Limbaugh, people of this ilk. And so with that being the case, they could just have at it. And might I add just a little spoiler alert, Suzanne brought up fair and balanced as a phrase. Yes. If you are Fox News constantly trumpeting your status as a source of 
fair and balanced news, there's a great likelihood that you are not delivering fair and balanced <laughs> news. You don't have to keep saying it. Just do it if you're for real. Right. And let me just say one last thing. If you, you know, if you're, if you're playing tricks, it doesn't mean you're a trickster in the archetypal sense. You know, anybody can play tricks. The trickster personality is a much more fleshed out thing. And when tricksters tell lies, they tell lies to reveal the truth. And so the truth is actually very important. And this is, and I can give examples if you like, but if there, but there's this distinct difference between telling lies to reveal the truth and a trickster who does not seek to accumulate power, but only to mock power versus telling lies in the interest of accumulating power, telling lies to obscure the truth. There's a big difference between that. So, 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 <laughs> and I know we're going to get to this soon, but when you tell people you're going to levitate the Pentagon, um, it's an obvious <laughs> fantasy and a lie. But it's trying to reveal the truth that uh, there's a lot of war and violence and terrible things that come out of that building, and you're not going to beat it with force. So you have to beat it with trickery and mockery. One of the things I wanted to bring up from uh, the book that we have here now is uh, in Disruptive Play, yeah. you, you write in the book that play has meaning but not purpose and is not goal oriented. So it, it's not for the, the purpose. One of the things that um, I heard last night on TV was the lies that were trolled for power and profit. And so when you're, when you're being a trickster, you're not doing it for power and profit. And I think that's the big distinction between uh, disruptive play versus what was going on at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Not, not, not that they haven't studied that playbook but, um, and are using it, but Suzanne, I think you nailed it. That's, that's exactly right. And now on to today's topic. As I said in, the, in our opening, this is your third time on, and, and Gary and I just really love your book. It's a very scholarly work in the sense that it's not like a quick story that you can just you know read through really fast. It, you have a lot of depth of perception in this book. And so Gary and I have been kind of making our, our way through it at, at, a, at a pace where we can really enjoy the, the subtle nuances that you have in here. And when we began, we, we started at the beginning of the book and we talked about painters and performance artists. And then we talked about the beats of the 50s. And now the, the beats have kind of morphed into the 60s, into the hippies and the musicians. And one of the things that we were reading was that rock and roll gave youth the courage to act politically. Gary was saying even the beats were political, but uh, I think it took it to a new level once you got to the 60s. And so I wanted you to kind of start there, start with music. Sure. Well, um, I'm uh, very blessed uh, uh, to have been a, a teenager um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I'm, I'm uh, 67 years old now, so uh, so like in 1968, you know, to pick a year from that era, I was uh, 15 years old. So what was interesting was for uh, my uh, my little micro generation, 
you know, our big brothers and sisters, they were the, they, they were the real hippies. They were the ones who were uh, uh, more sexually active, more, you know, had a driver's license, uh, could get in and out of places more and get to and from places a little bit easier than, uh, than, 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 than me, even though we saw what was happening. And, and uh, um, I, I didn't have a driver's license, but I had a thumb. And it was okay, a little bit more okay to hitchhike in those days. And I did a lot of hitchhiking. Uh, in particular, I was hitchhiked up to San Francisco and got to go to some, a lot of these rock and roll shows um, that were, you know, truly inspirational. So, so like you said, um, you know, uh, uh, the beats were very political uh, uh, in, in their perspective, uh, whether it was Allen Ginsberg or I'm thinking of Gregory Corso, who wrote an amazing poem about the atomic bomb. So there was this, you know, there was this real anxiety about uh, the possibilities of nuclear war and, and, and fear around that. And, and, and then in the, the, the early rock and roll uh, stuff was, was really a liberation of, of, of sexuality and, and freedom. And, and then, you, of course, you had, you know, there were more cars on the road and kids could get their driver's license and they could go on dates and do, do the, So they were experiencing the liberation uh, less politically, but very much in terms of a uh, not just sexual, but just a permissiveness and seeing what they could get away with. Then the '60s show up, and uh, and 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 you've got and you because because of the Vietnam War, because of the civil rights movement, uh, you had this amazing conglomeration of of the the kind of utopian thinking I'm going to call it that was going on in the Bay Area and New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. Uh, and, and, and you had these very serious things going on, uh, the civil rights movement and the uh, war in Vietnam. And, and, and so this very playful approach, um, rather than colliding, although you know on a small level it probably did collide, but rather than colliding with these serious issues, it kind of, it all blended and we just have this amazing movement. It's fun to be talking about it today because I think it's happening again right now. And we, we just, but we have this amazing movement that was able to somehow hang on to all of it. And that is as serious and deadly and uh, to my mind, horrific as the Vietnam War was and what we did to those uh, amazing people what we did to our own young men um, is just, you know, terrible. And uh, yet, yet in protest to that, first of all, it could be playful. You had folks like, like Abby Hoffman, um, you, you, you had puppeteers and you had demonstrations that featured a lot of satire. The other thing about the Bay Area, there was this great group called the San Francisco Meme Troupe. I mean, I think they still exist today that they would put on these these plays at demonstrations that were hilarious and satirical and playful, but their messages were, were very serious. So you kind of had this ability to hold it all, you know, at the same time. And I want to say there was also Teatro Campesino, which grew out of the farm workers movement uh, south of San Francisco, but still in Northern California in the Salinas area. And there was there was there was great cross fertilization. Uh, between those movements. 
so I think the music energized it. And of course, of course, the thing that uh, rock and roll had that that they that they didn't have quite as much uh, access to in the beat uh, era, because in the beat era, it was folk music and coffee shops, and it was jazz and nightclubs. The nightclubs was where all the electricity was happening, the nightclubs and the coffee shops, and it was great. But when you get to 60s rock and roll, all of a sudden you get you get the large concert, you know. And, you know, from a technical perspective, it's kind of like, you know, the Beatles had to give up live performing because the crowds were so noisy, it was so chaotic, it wasn't musical the way their their club era had been in, in Hamburg, you know, when they could play in small clubs. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, however you care to think of it, it was just very soon after the Beatles stopped performing live that they the technology showed up where they learned how to do large concerts and they build larger speaker systems and so forth so that technological advancement in terms of uh, public address systems or concert amplification um, allowed a, a larger mass gathering and I think you would as if you're a young person you're going to these larger concerts of course you had Woodstock you had Monterey Pop but then it, it became an industry and we can talk about what it degenerated into, but, but, and also what new forms it gave birth to. But at that moment, you, as a young person, you could kind of feel your oats. You felt you were politically powerful because my God, there were 10, 20, 50, a hundred thousand other people out at this show with you. And I, if that's kind of what you were thinking about, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. <laughs> and, and you saw the Grateful Dead. Lucky you. Oh, only only 50 times, so. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I would have been fine uh, with as few as one or two because I just appreciate their music so much. And here's a, like they need it from me, but here's a plug for the Grateful Dead. They managed to be constantly inventive, and they did it in a way that did not divorce their musical sensibilities from the sense of play. I don't think it's fair to say they sold a lot of records and look at all those concerts and all the VW buses following them around. But with all of that happening, I never got the sense that they were selling out. Right. Right. No, they were, you know, and uh, um, yeah, they're heroes of mine. Um, uh, I, I got to meet Jerry Garcia twice. Um I went went to a lot of their shows. In fact, when I talked about hitchhiking up to San Francisco, that was what was in my, I, I went up for a lot of shows, but what was in my mind was uh, seeing the dead in 1968. And, and, and they were, they were kind of punks, you know, I mean, my very first Grateful Dead show, Phil, Phil Lesh uh, blew out his, uh, his amp because they were experimenting with feedback and all of a sudden his, his, the bass amp, and speaker just exploded right on stage. And that was my introduction to them. Um, and, and, uh, um, and, and it, it, it is true. There was, I don't have the quote in front of me, but, but there was a Garcia quote where he said, you know, we're just trying to have fun, you know, and uh, that, that just stuck with me. And in a way that is a foundation of everything that I've written that, uh, you know, when we get, our politics figured out and we get poverty figured out in the environment. And these are going to take a while uh, and the world is at peace. And 
we're not working 50, 60, 80 hours a week. It, 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 it's heartbreaking to me how hard some people have to work right now just to make their rent and with COVID can't make their rent. Um, when we get through all that, we're gonna have to be equipped to manage our time and worry less about how hard we're working and <laughs> I don't know how this is going to sound, but, you know, be concerned with how much fun we're having, because I think that's what we were ultimately born to do. Well said. Well said. Oh, yeah. I so wanted to bring up one more thing before the break. It was something that that I read that really kind of stuck with me. And um, it, it's from your uh, chapter on the counterculture. You say one cannot become too good for too long at any measurable skill in order to remain in the play state. And I, I sat and I thought about that. And this is what it reminded me of. We, we live uh, fairly close to the Gulf of Mexico, to the beach. Mm -hmm. And so if we go to the beach and you see kids playing, they're, they're throwing sand, they're digging holes, they're running in and out of the water, they are playing freely. Right. Now you've got somebody who has decided they're going to build a, a little sandcastle. So they got a couple of buckets, they got a couple of shovels, and they're doing a fair job of building a sandcastle. It's no longer play because they're working on a skill set to make sure that that castle looks like a castle and it's got a moat and it's got a, you know, various turrets and things like that. And there's a real distinction between the, the, the energy and the, the mentality and the personality of what's going on between the kids who are running, playing and throwing sand and digging holes versus the one who's really concentrating on building a good sandcastle. Now, does that pretty well describe what you're talking about there? Yeah, and, and, and I think we both know the world, the world needs both, you know? Um, and I tend to call that the castle builder, I'll call that cultural play. So still playing, but, but, but what the other kids are doing is original play, right? Um, and and the, the, you, uh, you quoted a phrase, and that the other phrase I use is, is called the transience of competence, that where you're, you're in that state of grace of playfulness. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you're not there to build competence. You're, you're there to have fun. Now, if you, now the, in the next hour, you may choose to do an activity that does build competence, and the world needs both. And the reason it's important is because our society has become so obsessed with achievement, uh, with competence, with um, um, you know, with, with high skills, and well, really not competence so much as competition and winning. You know, because it turns it also into a game. My castle's better than your castle. Um, I'm entering the contest, the sandcastle contest. Uh, and if I win in the Gulf of Mexico, I get to go to the regionals, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, there's nothing wrong. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with that stuff, except when you are so obsessed with it or when society itself is obsessed with it. And we're doing so much of it that we, we don't have time for that, that first kind of play. And that's what really refreshes the spirit and makes, you know, makes your discipline forms all the more more valuable. 
Well, and again, going back to what we talked about earlier of play not really being goal oriented. Right. So in, in that idea of building the sandcastle, there is a goal to build a structure in the sand, whereas, um, you know, the other kind of play doesn't really have a goal involved. It's, it's just running around. You're either chasing or being chased. You're in, an, you're in the water or out of the water. You know, you're, you know, whatever, whatever that play looks like. Um, running and screaming and all of that, it, it doesn't have to do with a particular uh, goal or a particular accomplishment in mind. It's just very free-flowing. Right. Meaning, but not purpose. You know, unless you call having fun purpose, right? So that gets semantic. You, you, you nailed it. Meaning, but not purpose. Whereas the sandcastle builder has a purpose. I got to get this castle built. And let me just say, we need both, but they're, they're out of balance. They're out of balance in our society, and we need to get them balanced. And there is an artistic addressing of that need, a way to fulfill it. When you find a need, fill it. And if you can do it with art, if you can do it with music, you are achieving a definite, though subjectively interpreted, good for humanity. Now that sounds pretty high-minded for guys with guitars and, and some drums and good voices and making music and having a great time doing it. But there is a purpose beyond that purpose when the moment is right. I would like to, I'm just putting it out there, Shep, because we need to take a break. And when we come back, it's already break time. This has just been going remarkably fast. Uh, we'll take our break. And when we come back, I want to take that up, the idea of art and play and politics, making a statement and making fun happen, making music happen at the same time. When it all comes together, there's something magical, but something to which that magic points that is quite serious for societies. Sure. Shep Siegel is our guest. We're getting into the weeds in a fun way. And when we come back, we will take up music, art, and a sociological perspective that is written with uncommon elan when the writer is Shep Siegel. We are Manson Mitchell. Glad to have you with us. Give us a couple of minutes. We will be right back. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mance and Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. If you're talking, they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy, so we show them how. 
And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. So On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Deborah Wilson, who shares her spiritual insights and their application in our everyday world, angels and prosperity. On Saturday, Reverend Tom Newman, whom we like to call the seer of Santa Fe, joins us for a full hour with his perspective on life as lived on the other side. Bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Wondering what's on next on Alternative Talk 1150? Check out 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. And our guest this hour is Shepard Siegel, Ph.D. He wrote a book called Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. And Shepard Siegel is completing another book, which we don't yet have. It's in production. We are very eager to read that when it comes out. Dr. Siegel, if people would like to connect with you, do you have a website? Is uh, Where can they get your book? Anything that you would like to tell our listeners? Yes, I, I, I want to direct them to my website because you can, um, you can read the introduction of the book for free and decide whether you want to read further. Um, also, um, the book is available on Amazon, uh, Disruptive Play. But uh, from my website, you can go to this link, which takes you to independent booksellers, and you enter your zip code, and it'll tell you which independent bookseller um, carry, carries the book, and we can support those folks. And they're among the many small businesses that are struggling so much through this, this, this time. The only uh, trick is to make sure you spell my name correctly. <laughs> How do you spell it? Well, so Shepard is kind of like the way you, uh, the occupation, although you don't see them in the yellow pages or you don't see yellow pages anymore, but uh, like a sheep herder. So S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. And Siegel is S-I-E-G-E-L. So when in doubt, use an E. Um, when in doubt, use an E. ShepardSiegel.com. And uh, I'd love to see you there on the site. You can connect with me and sign up and, and join, join my mailing list, which uh, I, I'll send out stuff um, once a month at the most. Good. Thank you. When we chose this song by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Ohio, it right. was with this purpose in mind. And there were two other candidates, and then Suzanne and I agreed we'd play Ohio. I was thinking of Donovan's Season of the Witch, where oh, he yeah. sings about beat nicks out to make it rich and there's also from grateful dead estimated profit where in california would be messiah claims claims that time is sure passing slow but he's going to be attended by uh angels 
he's going to be uh, in a shaft of light. He's preaching on the burning shore. And I think this is the kind of music that spoke to people who heard something beyond the notes and the melody of the music itself. It was, if you will, a, casp, a, a capsule summary, I guess, a capsule summary of where society was going in places that we generally agreed were important to watch and to track. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I'm thinking about how um, you've got, for politics in, in music, you know, you, you've got the folk music and the protest songs um, and, and that speak directly uh, to a political issue. You know, early Bob Dylan, Death of Hattie Carroll comes to mind right away, but, you know, there's this really hard Bob Dylan song to get that he, uh, about George Jackson, uh, imprisoned, uh, I don't know if he was a Black Panther, but he was a militant civil rights activist, uh, apparently wrongly jailed, or actually shot, shot down. Whoa, whoa, they shot George Jackson down. And I think about Phil Oakes, uh, too, who wrote contemporary protest political songs. But then you take the songs, that, and, and then even Ohio, so Ohio is a rock and roll song. So we've made one change. The content is still specifically political. Four dead in Ohio at an anti-Vietnam protest, 1970. Um, but, the, but the genre, the music itself, is now electric rock and roll, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And then you have the other example you gave, like Estimated Profit, and songs that just speak to what our state of mind is right now to our cultural moment, but they don't become dated because unless I'm mistaken, and you know the lyrics better than I do for estimated profit, but they, he doesn't name names, right? So it's right. something that can be true in continue to be true in more than one era, even though it speaks to a, a political um, sensibility. Um, yeah, and then Season of the Witch, uh, wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I think that that one just as well uses more timeless, symbolic, uh, uh, you know, the witch is even an archetype, you know, and uh, uh, a friend of mine used that that is the title for his book. Uh, David Talbot wrote a book, Season of the Witch, that was kind of about Jonestown and, and that era in San Francisco uh, that, where things kind of went screwy. <laughs> yes, indeed. And it, it speaks to these larger issues and a mindset to go with. In Estimated Profit, and pardon me for getting into the details here, we're, just, we're music nuts chatting here. There, but In Estimated Profit, at one point, the chorus breaks in, California preaching on the burning shore. Right. And that California preaching on the burning shore, because if you have a messianic message, that's where you would go to preach. And not just back in the day. So today, if you look at California, down the road a piece from where this broadcast originates, you have wildfires. You have the, the clear effects of global warming. You have a, the, the COVID-19 pandemic taking up residents hideously in that state, so much so that their funeral directors turning away business. It's right. that bad. Right. But people in that set of circumstances 
forget that for most of its existence, since we negotiated it away from the Mexicans, California has been an idea as much as an expanse of land. And these ideas, many of them experimental, play out on that far west stage. Right, right. And, and, and you've got this, you've got these the communes and the idealism and the, and, and, and the, the history, not just of the hippies in the 60s, but the beats, you know, after in New York and San Francisco, where the, uh, and, and then you've got all the things that come out of LA. It's funny, when you say burning shore, what came to my mind was oil spills, you know? Ah, well, there you go. Oil spills and that you can, the, the ocean can actually be on fire. If, uh, if an oil spill ignited, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and, and then when we look at today, um, well, music, music, music has really, really changed, but the, it's certainly much more politically aware than I think it was at the end of the last century and the beginning of this one. Um, so um, I, I, I am more optimistic than, than ever before that we're, we're getting some of that same confluence where the artists and the political, per, the, the political perspectives of liberation, let me call it that, um, are coming together. Now, the missing part that you talked about is the sociology, because first of all, and you would not, I mean, I've been hanging in there since March, like everybody else. Uh, so we're coming up on a year, but it is in the last few weeks that I have just really been missing live music, mm. really wanting to go to a live show and really missing that feeling. And I, I mean, I've been to 2000 live shows. I actually calculated it once. It's some, it's kind of part of my blood. So that's the part that's missing as the live shows or people coming together in person. Um, that's the sociology of it is, and that's a theme of the book I'm working on now. What happens when people gather? And uh, yeah, so, 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 so I, I look forward to what's happening and I'm thinking about the protest movements of 2020 uh, uh, and even a couple years before um, the Me Too uh, the Women's Day March um, in 20, January of 2017, um, the Black Lives Matter marches, um, especially the ones of 2020. And because of COVID, um, you know, there were plenty of, plenty of boomers joining. I don't buy the theory of the generation gap. So there were plenty of boomers joining in with people in their teens and 20s and 30s um, in the streets, um, marching for Black Lives Matter. But I think because of COVID, there's more folks of our generation who are a lot more cautious about going out and joining a crowd. I know that I was eager to march, but I was very careful and Us too. did not yeah. get out as much as I wanted to. Yeah. Um, and kind of like if I was at a march, I just kind of hung back where the crowd wasn't tightly packed. And when it got tightly packed, I, I turned around because I just don't want to get don't want to get COVID. <laughs> you used the word confluence a few minutes ago, and yeah. I thought that was the perfect word when um, you go from talking about the um, the music of the 60s 
and what was happening in the politics of the 60s. So in the last 10 minutes or so we have left, I wanted to have you say a little bit about Abby Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. Because we are talking about a major, major trickster. And uh, this is from your book, Disruptive Play. And in in the book, you, you specifically, you start out with a great story about, you know, what, what would, what would you think if you got up to have your morning coffee and you saw the headlines, rebels invade Disneyland (laughs) and Gary said, Oh, he's got to tell that story. And in line with that, to weave that you stepped away from the microphone during the break, Suzanne, Shep said, he really wants to hear about your, my term for it, your field trip to the trial of the Chicago seven. You were in that courtroom. So let's weave all that together. We'll put it all together and we'll do it fast. Okay. You start, Shep. So, so, so the beauty of is that Abby Hoffman was a, an artistic mind. He wasn't a rock and roll guy, uh, musician, but he was a he was a he was a performance artist. And claiming to levitate the Pentagon is ab- ab- obviously a piece of performance art. But something they did earlier is um, they were objecting to the they were making fun of the left, you know. And Disneyland had a policy at the time of no long hair. So they said, well, we're going to protest no long hair and we're going to do an action and we're going to take over Disneyland. So they did. They marched on Disneyland and they took it over and they uh, they took over the, I forget the name of the island, but the island where the Pirates of the Caribbean are. Treasure Island. Is it Treasure Island? It is. Yeah, they took over Treasure Island and made a declaration. So it was hilarious. But it was also, you know, you know, making a point, and 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 it was the great art. Art of it was, was this prank, and I, the policy eventually changed. But that almost uh, does, doesn't matter as much. And they, they, you know, they fooled around, and 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 it was a culture clash, too, because of the folks in those days who went to Disneyland were particularly straight. Uh, Disney himself was pretty conservative and you know I think things have changed so- somewhat um, but uh, yeah it, it's a great story it's a that alone hopefully is a good reason for folks to take a look at the book uh, to read about the Disneyland invasion and let me, let me conclude because I'm so eager to talk about the trial of the Chicago 7 where they also brought an artistic playful sensibility into the courtroom but I'm reading this book uh, right now that's all about pranks. And if, if you'll indulge me, I want to read this quick quote. Sure. And then, um, and then uh, hear about your field trip. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, I had it. Here it is. Um, this is from the research group in San Francisco. Obedience to language and image must continually be challenged if we are to stay, quote, alive. The best pranks research and probe the boundaries of the occupied territory known as society in an attempt to redirect that society toward a vision of life grounded not in dreadful necessity, but rather continual poetic renewal. Pranks function to evoke the parallel land of make-believe that realm of perpetual surprise and delight where endless possibilities for fun and pleasure depend upon circumvention of habit and cliche. 
From their shadow world, pranks cast their funhouse mirror reflection of our workaday world. Ultimately, the territory signposted by pranks may represent our single, supremely tangible freedom. So to think about Disneyland as a place that you would invade <laughs> and try to take over is preposterous, but it's a prank that breaks open the normality of daily life and it helps people imagine a better world. Uh, yes, you're right. And and of course, nobody got killed or injured. I mean, no. it, it was a, a prank that was without uh, a major uh, catastrophic incident. It, it just made a statement. You, you blew rather quickly over levitating the Pentagon. And it's, it's such a great story. I, I have to go back to that for, for one quick minute. And that is that Abby Hoffman actually encircled the Pentagon to try and figure out how many people he was going to need in order to have everybody hold hands and levitate the Pentagon off the ground. Now, I can't even imagine anything more ridiculous. Gary and I were just laughing and laughing as we were reading that. But that is a wonderful idea. And then the news media wouldn't even cover it. Which means we don't really know whether it happened or not. There you go. <laughs> we'll have to pick a letter of the alphabet and then add Anon to it. And then we can tell those stories. <laughs> well, very good. Very good. So you went on a field I, trip. I was, uh, I was in college during the Chicago 7 trial. I, I lived in Chicago. And I was going to school at Northwestern, so I was I was a local. And um, several friends came home from college, University of Illinois, and other places, in order to attend the uh, trial for a day. And back in the day, surprisingly enough, there was a fair amount of security letting people in the room. You, there was a metal detector. All the ladies had to open up their purses and have them examined by the security guards. And people were not exactly padded down, but they were they were looked at pretty carefully before they were allowed in. And Judge Julius Hoffman made sure to let the visitors know that he would not tolerate one second of outburst or we would all be out the door. So we had to be on our best behavior, and we were. So we got to sit through several hours of uh, what was going on there, and I saw it live and in person. Um, you know, the the uh, the judge, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubens, all the people who were on trial at that time, and what was going on with William Kunstler, their defense mm -hmm. attorney. Mm -hmm. And nothing really spectacular happened the day that I was there other than, um, you know, the answers to the questions being rather Ill, irreverent. And you also pointed that out in your, in your book when you had a little bit of, of quoting from the, the actual uh, trial where they're, they're asking, you know, Abby Hoffman, um, you know, where he lives. And he says the Woodstock nation. Well, where's that? You know, it, it's in your mind. It's not, it's not a place. I don't have an address for it, but you know, he says that that's where I live. So it was that kind of banter, that kind of questioning, um, you know, back and forth 
that uh, we got to observe firsthand. And uh, during the um, the convention, the Democratic Convention of 1968, my parents would not let me anywhere near the city. We lived out in the suburbs and about 20, 25 miles from the city. And uh, in no uncertain terms was I to be anywhere near that place. And I wanted to be there to see it. When I saw it on television and saw how violent it got, I was glad that I was not there because I, I don't know that I, I could have remained safe. But I, I wanted, I had a sense, even at a young age, I had a sense that this was history in the making and I wanted to see it for myself. Right. And so I, I went ahead and, uh, and made the trip down with my friends for the trial. Well, was, was, was Bobby Seale still there when you went or had he, do you remember? I don't remember. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember every single person who was there. I specifically remember Jerry Rubens and Abby Hoffman. They really stuck out for me, but as far as all the other people who were there, I don't know. And, you know, in in the book, um, I I take this quote from uh, an E.L. Doctorow novel, uh, The Book of Daniel which I think is so appropriate to it. And you can look at Franz Kafka's The Trial, too. And Dr. O's saying, you know, when you're on trial, do not plead innocent and do not plead guilty. Um, If if you plead guilty um, or or if if you're found guilty, then the state has exercised its option to punish you. If you're found innocent, the state says, well, you're no threat, so we don't really need to worry about you. So instead, you, 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 you put the trial on trial. You protest the trial itself. And that's what Hoffman was doing um, uh, throughout it. I also got to ask you what you thought of the, the Aaron Sorkin movie about the trial that came out recently. If you haven't seen it, I'll tell you no. what I thought of it. No, I haven't seen it, and we don't have a lot of time left to go over that. We actually need to wrap up now, but you know what that means, Shep? It means we're going to have, gonna you, have back you back there. Yay. And I have, I have a fever dream of bringing you and a gentleman who's been on our show a couple of times, Christopher Hill. You two guys are sociological <laughs> soulmates, and what a conversation that will be. I will arrange that, sir, and we will have you two gentlemen on our show, probably without commercial interruption. Can't wait for next time. Shepard Siegel, thank you so much. Thank you, Gary and Suzanne. I love talking to you guys. Oh, we'll do it again. We will. And we won't wait so long. Okay. How's Jupiter doing? Jupiter is rising in the next hour, Gary, with Eileen Grimes. Fantastic. Stay tuned to 1150 AM. You don't get this stuff everywhere, folks. Have yourselves a fun and safe weekend.